We are back in the book of Revelation, chapter 9. My hope last Sunday was to preach chapters 8 and 9. I only got through 8. And so we look at chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 8 and 9 are the trumpet judgments. Way back in chapter 6, we saw the seal judgments. And then we saw at the beginning of this chapter the opening of the seventh seal, which is or contains, if you will, these trumpets. And we saw four of them briefly down there in verse 7. The first sounded, the first trumpet, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star was called Wormwood, or Bitterness. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And again briefly, I said that many interpreters understand these judgments to be things that will take place in a future seven-year great tribulation period. And that may well be the case. In recent years, though, I've begun to understand that maybe what John saw in his vision and what he is describing for us in the book of Revelation is not that which is going to take place in a future seven-year tribulation period, but are the kinds of things that are going to be taking place between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so that what John has seen in these, this vision and what he has recorded for us is apocalyptic in nature. It is very symbolic in nature. And interpreting it can be quite difficult. The direction I took last week was that maybe... What John saw and what John is recording and what we have in the pages of this chapter is a great reminder not to put your faith in the stuff of earth. We consider the earth and the, the trees and the lumber that comes from it and the pasture lands and the like, the crops and where the cows and the sheep and the goats often graze and are fattened up and bless so much, so much sustenance, so much life, and for many so much commerce and wealth comes from the earth. And many look to it for life and security and satisfaction and meaning. And John says, don't trust in it. It'll disappoint. Or the sea. The ability to travel and to ship goods from here and there and to make a fortune via the seas and all of the fish and the fishing business 
and the military might on the seas. That is where our strength is found. That is what we will, where we will find life and security and satisfaction and meaning and the like. Don't trust in it. It will disappoint. The same with the rivers and springs, the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Again, we said that the stuff of earth will not deliver. It's not down here where we will find security, where we will find salvation. Remember we talked of Solomon who described life under the sun as if it were lived just down here with what we could see, feel, taste, smell, and hear. Down here in the material world, life is empty, he said. I've tried it all more than any has tried it before or aft, and it is empty. It does not deliver. And praise God, he said, we don't have to live life under the sun, that there is a God who changes everything. We quoted Rich Mullins, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance, but I owe only to the giver of all good things. The stuff of earth is good. These things are good. They are gifts, though, to be used and to be enjoyed, but not to be looked to for security and satisfaction for life and meaning and the like. We owe our allegiance to the giver of all good things. Well, in verse 13, then I looked, John says, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. That little phrase, those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers, in the book of Revelation, it always represents unbelievers. It always represents those who do not have a saving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Woe, woe, woe. We are about to get three more trumpet judgments. In chapter 9, we will see number 5 and number 6. And apparently these are more scary. This angel says, whoa. Verse 9, or chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth 
and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. What an amazing vision. What, what to make of it? If you were up here, what would you preach? Anybody want to trade? Could this be referring again to a future seven-year tribulation in which as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ, things really begin to get bad? Could be. But again, I think John is describing what's happening throughout this age from the first coming of Christ all the way up until his second. And along with many interpreters, I think what John sees and is trying to describe is a horde of demons at work in the world to do the bidding we're going to see of Satan. He goes on to describe them in verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their hair, heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. Both of those mean the destroyer. And apparently, this is Satan. This is a horde of demons headed up by Satan who is seeking to bring devastation to people upon the earth. They're not like regular old locusts up in verse 3 and 4. They're told not to, to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. That's what locusts do, is eat trees and grass. But not these locusts, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You'll remember back in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 6, in the description of the seal judgments, the sixth seal was the coming of Jesus Christ in wrath. The second coming of Jesus to bring wrath upon his enemies and to vindicate his people. Then the question was posed, in light of the coming wrath of the Lamb of God, who can stand? 
And we got the answer in chapter 7, where John heard about 144,000 who were sealed. And then he saw an innumerable group of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And I argued and said that along with others, I think John is describing the same group of people. It's those who are in saving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Those who have been sealed by God. Those whom he says, you belong to me. That's what a seal does. Remember I talked about that seal that that Antonio had gotten for me to seal my books. To say, this is the property of Mitch Mayer. When God saves his people, he seals them with his Holy Spirit. You belong to me. And in chapter 7, they are those who have been washed by Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, and who will inherit the new heavens and new earth. And so this horde of demons is not to eat the grass and not to eat the trees, but rather is to bring their destruction against the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, a horde of demons headed by Satan who are seeking devastation in the lives of unbelievers. They do not want people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. We modern scientific people are averse to such realities. So secularized that maybe sometimes we're unwilling to admit the existence of such things, but the Bible is absolutely clear that there's not merely the stuff of earth. We don't live only in a materialistic world, but a theistic one. A materialistic world, a naturalistic worldview says the only thing that's true, the only thing that's real, is what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can smell. That's it. It's material, it's naturalistic. But the Bible has a completely different worldview that says, oh, no, 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 no. It's a theistic worldview of a God who has been forevermore, or who has been and will be forevermore, who spoke the material world into existence and who upholds it by his power. Francis Schaeffer, many of you remember him from yesteryear. He would write books like The God Who Is There, The God Who Is There and Is Not Silent. He would often speak of the lower story and the upper story. The lower story was the stuff down here that you could see, you could feel, you could taste, you could smell, you could hear. That, if you will, all of mankind was familiar with. But then he would speak of the upper story, the place 
of beauty and values, of meaning and purpose, and of course, God. Well, Peter Jones, theologian, philosopher of our day, famous for his one-ism and two-ism ideas. That one-ism says that what we that what exists is only what we can see, feel, touch, the, the stuff of earth. And thus, in a worldview like that, there is no God, or if there is, we make ourselves God. Everything is one. And of course, he argues not for oneism, but for twoism. There is a creator, and then there is the creation. There is a distinction between those two. All of that to say that there is not merely a material world, but there is a spiritual world as well. God, who it appears created an angelic realm, Grudem defines angels as created spiritual beings with moral judgments, high intelligence, but without physical bodies. They're spiritual beings. And apparently, getting our clues from the scriptures, some of those angels rebelled against God apparently led by one in particular, Satan, the devil. And with him, evil angels who rebelled against God. And now they continually work evil in the world. Maybe what John saw and what Jesus through his vision to him was trying to communicate is that this period of time, John, leading all the way up until the coming of Christ, Satan is going to be at work. And he's got a whole host of demons with him to carry out his work. And they do not love the people they're seeking to influence. They want to bring devastation, destruction, and ultimately death. He goes on. The first woe is past. In verse 12, behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and 
hyacinth and of brimstone, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceed out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do What to make of that? I think as well, John sees and in, in is describing a horde, an incalculable army. When he says the number of the horsemen was 200 million, it's an evil, demonic, incalculable horde of demons. If you know anything, maybe a a little bit, about the Old Testament, Israel's enemies would come from the east, from across the Euphrates, whether it was the Assyrian army that came in 722 BC, whether it was the Babylonian army that would come later in 605 and 597 and 586. Not in biblical history, but a little bit later, I think in the hundred years before Christ, the Parthians came from the east, crossing the Euphrates River and coming to bring destruction upon the people of God. And John sees in this vision this army that is bound at the great river Euphrates, where these angels are bound, and apparently they then release this army that comes from the east and they come to do harm. If I'm right, maybe we could think something like this. You've heard me often talk about the strategies of our enemy to to steal your joy and steal my faith and even get us, if you will, to apostatize, to turn away from faithfulness to Jesus. Discouragement and deception and distraction and things like that. I'm going to use the same ideas. And wonder if it's not true, if the great enemy of the souls of men has been at work now for some 2,000 years, Apollyon and his demonic hordes, to keep absolutely as many people as they can from a life-giving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. To keep them from turning from death to life. To use every strategy they can to keep them from giving glory to God for what he has done through Jesus, his son, and to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God and adopted into his family 
and be given the assurance of eternal life, to keep them unsaved, leading to their destruction, not only in this life, but for eternity. Is it not true that Satan seeks to deceive? Not simply believers. We know that he tries to do that to us, but unbelievers as well. To distort their understanding of reality when it comes to the stuff that really matters. To deceive them into believing that the scripture is not the word of God. That's ridiculous. It's just another book Holy book, it may be, but it just sits on the same shelf of the other holy books. It's not unique, and it's certainly not the authoritative word of any God who created the world. Do they not try to deceive, to keep us not only believing that the word of God is not true, but there is no God anyway. Or if there is, he's not sovereign. He's not worthy to be worshipped. He's not to be feared. He's just big grandpappy in the sky. He's my cosmic vending machine that if I'll just put in the right amount of coins and push the button I like, I'll get what I want. That's who God is. So many lies today. So much deception. Who, who are we? Well, we're just the end product of time and chance. The product of an evolutionary process that had no guidance from an eternal mind. The Bible says, oh, no, 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 no. We are created in the image of God and in his likeness. And we are to be in relationship with him, to look to him for life, to trust in his word and obey. And cling to him for the forgiveness that he provides through his son, Jesus. And on and on and on and on to deceive us. Satan loves to distort the truth and deceive lost men and women from coming to Christ. Or, not only does he try to deceive, does he not try to distract as well? Some of you have read C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. If you were Lewis and you were going to write the screw tape letters, and if you'll remember, the screw tape letters were there is screw tape, and he's the, the top demon, if you will, or he's the, he's the one who is schooling Wormwood, his protege demon, in how best to do his thing upon men. How does Screwtape, the wise demon, teach Wormwood, the naive demon, 
how best to do his work. If you were Lewis and you were going to write that book, what, what would be screw tape letter number one? I'm going to read it fast. It's not terribly long. Dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading. His patient is a person who he wants to keep from the enemy, who is God. I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. So, hey, you're doing a good, you know, it seems like you're wanting him to to read books that are going to keep him from God and you want him hanging out with his materialist friend who doesn't even believe there's a God. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you supposed that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. If it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But... What with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that, right? The, the newspaper had come out. And they could now print newspapers. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a, a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is the best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous, that it is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. Isn't that great? Our God has become one of us in Jesus. Never having been a human, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading... I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. So this man's in the British Museum. He's reading, and he's beginning to think about God. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. So God comes. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made a counter-suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line, for when I said, quite, in fact, 
much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up and was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone in his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about that, quote, inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. I think what Lewis meant by that is that, that this man understood that inarticulate sense for, rea for actuality, that inarticulate sense of the stuff of earth the, the, for actuality, only the things that he could see, touch, and all of that, that that was the safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our Father's house. Do remember, you are there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was your job to teach. Your affectionate uncle... Screwtape. Screwtape letter number one, distract him. And oh, how distracted we are, not merely by lunch or the newspaper, my money, sports and scores and lines and entertainment and body image and appearance and reputation and mortgages and debts and ladders to climb and square footage to attain and bragging rights to get and success. Satan loves to use the distractions of life to keep people in the darkness. We don't have time, but one more. Some of y'all will remember, this has been decades ago, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was talking about the television. Not merely the television, but that was a new thing in American life. And people were beginning to give so much of their time, to, they were amusing themselves to death. Amuse. To muse means to think. Ah, muse means don't think, just sit there and let someone else do the thinking for you. It's just with the television. What would Neil Postman write today? He deceives, he distracts, he discourages. Life in a fallen world can be hard. It is filled with hardship and trial. We could make a long list, but Satan loves to use that, not, not in our lives as he does to try to get us to grow angry with God and turn away from him, but with the unbelieving, does he not use it as well to keep them from God? 
And finally, deceive, distract, discourage, delight. Satan uses the delight, the pleasures of sin, to keep people from repentance and trust in Jesus. The scriptures admit that there is a passing pleasure to sin. And many an unbeliever is having a good old time. But it is passing pleasure. And Satan tempts them to believe that the greatest pleasures, the most satisfying pleasures, are not found in God, but in other things. So why would you ever turn from those other things to trust in and follow the ways of God? He is but a cosmic killjoy. It's deception. And it keeps them in their delights and what they don't know, what we didn't know before the grace of God is that the most satisfying joys are found at the right hand of God. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. Much to say, but not enough time. God calls upon men to repent and to trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Conversion is, whenever a person is converted to Jesus, it's repentance and faith. It's, it's being here with one's sins, but then when they are converted, they understand it is their sin that is evil. It is their sin that has separated them from God. It is their sin that will be their eternal undoing. And so they, in the hearing of the gospel message and the internal work of the Spirit calling them, they say, I don't want my sin anymore. I want Christ. It's repentance and faith. You understand a person is getting the gospel when they do understand that sin part and the coming judgment part. When they understand, yep, I, I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from God and yes, I deserve Eternal separation from God. When they, when they get that, you're like, yeah, they're, just, they're getting it. Because the, the, the good news is, the best of news 
when it is presented against the backdrop of the bad news that we've sinned against God. And, and they say, I, I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus. And what that does not mean is that they never go back here. We're tempted to go back there all the time. We stumble and fall in our sins all the time. But, but repentance is, I have sinned. And I don't want sin anymore. I want forgiveness. And I want help. And so they repent. They turn away from their sin to Jesus. to be forgiven of all of their sins, and to be helped to walk with him. You know a person doesn't get it when they say, you mean I can turn to Jesus and still do my stuff? No. We turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and to follow him. But they don't. This is not a universal statement, right? Many people do. You did. By the grace of God, I did. And by the grace of God, many, many, many more will. But sadly, so many do not. Are you here today trusting in the stuff of earth? Have you been deceived? Have you been distracted? Have you been discouraged? Have you been delighting so much in your sin that you've never repented and trusted in Jesus? He offers to you forgiveness and a new kind of life. He has lived for you and died for you and risen for you. He is the Lord of all. And any who will turn from their sin to trust in him, he makes new. You can have life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and let's sing. Father in heaven, I pray for any here today who have never repented and trusted in Jesus that this moment might be their time. And Lord, we pray. So many of us are praying for friends, neighbors that might not know Jesus. Would you do an incredible work in those lives? to help them come as well to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. And we who know you, we thank you. We know that our salvation, our repentance, and our faith in Jesus was a gift granted by you. It's not because we were smarter and it's not because we were better and it's not because we were more spiritually sensitive. It's because of the grace of God that so worked in our hearts and opened our eyes to our sin, to your love in Jesus Christ. And so we bless you and thank you in his name. Amen.